Over 390,000 species of plants in the world more being discovered every year. Most of them will kill you. You get lost in the woods, you run out of food. You can't just eat any random plant. Most will make you very sick or kill you. The vast majority of plants are worse than Roundup. It's funny, I remember thinking in my head, it was like, well, the vegetables are still good for you, though, right? And he just looked at us and just said, I don't eat vegetables. I don't eat salads. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. You cannot reverse diabetes. It only gets worse. It's a progressive illness that only gets worse. We can temper it and slow it down with diet, exercise, lifestyle, medication, but it only gets worse. And yet now we can reverse it. Now we have uh, clinical trials in humans uh, with Verta Health, uh, with a professor, Steve Finney, who actually showed that you do, in fact, reverse type 2 diabetes uh, by putting people on a ketogenic, high-fat, meat-based ketogenic diet, which carbo diet is a ketogenic diet. Um, I've just seen it do absolutely dramatic things for my health. And even though I didn't have you know, major problems, I just feel a thousand times better than I've ever felt before. So, I mean, you look at look, look at Lewis and Clark, you know, their expedition across America. They ate meat. You know, they're going across the plains and things like that. It was just teeming with life, teeming with animals. They get in the mountains, they're like, oh, this sucks. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Dr. Anthony Chafee on the line. How's it going? Hey, very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this is a conversation that we've wanted to have for, for a long time, for sure. So talk a lot about, you know, carnivore, animal-based, you know, written a book, Half Defending Meat uh, and Beef. So this is always yes. fun. And we made it a line down here since we're both in Australia, two Americans on Australia currently. Yeah. So yes. it's kind of funny. But I guess uh, maybe where to start is you have one of the, I guess, the longest tenured times in uh, carnivore in terms of the people out there. And yeah, the, your education is great, you know, leading by example. But how did you kind of discover this? And what was what was your aha moment? for really jumping full on into the, the carnivore lifestyle and then educating others about it? Well, I, I sort of started inadvertently about 23 years ago when I was doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Washington. I was taking botany and biology, and I understood that plants were able to defend themselves by using different chemical deterrents, and that's their mainstay of their defense. All living things have a defense, and um, or else they go extinct. If it's not a good enough defense, and animals can run away or fight back, but plants can't, they're stationary, so they need other defenses, and most of those are chemical in nature. So they can be directly toxic or disrupt your digestion or hormones or fertility or all these other sorts of things. They can make latex, which is a sticky sap, will actually glue the mouth of an animal shut, and then they can't eat that plant anymore. It's a pretty elegant way to stop something from eating you. problem for the animal is that it dies because it can't get its, its teeth unglued usually. So the, the plants have no problem with you dying if they get to live. And same with, you know, deer and, and uh, rhinos and elephants. You know, they will smash animals that come around them if they feel that they're a threat to them or their children. Or they're just bored. I mean, they don't care. So it's just kill or be killed in the wild. And that's, that, that's for everything. So I already knew all that. Um, then I was taking cancer biology. And uh, my professor was just going into that about how plants are toxic. But 
uh, specifically in the sense of, of, a, of cancer biology is that they were carcinogenic and they had carcinogens and they had dozens, if not over a hundred. And we learned that even just Brussels sprouts had over 136 known human carcinogens and mushrooms had over a hundred and all the other produce items that we would eat on a regular basis had dozens, uh, if not over a hundred as well. And so we were very, very taken aback by that. There was evidence uh, going back to the eighties showing that it, there were more natural toxins in plants than the pesticides we would spray on them by weight, and they were actually more likely to cause cancer in lab tests than the 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 you know the, the chemical sprays we would spray on them. So the natural toxins, the natural insecticides, natural pesticides that the plants make themselves to stop animals and insects from eating them were actually worse than the pesticides were spraying on them. At least at the time, at least for the ones they were testing. Um, ALR being the, the main one. I don't know. I don't think that test has been done with glyphosate, for example. So, you know, people who round up and all that sort of stuff, could that be worse? Probably. But, you know, you have to re- realize too that there are over 390,000 species of plants in the world, more being discovered every year. Most of them will kill you. You get lost in the woods, you run out of food, you can't just eat any random plant. Most will make you very sick or kill you. That's because the vast majority are inedible. So, the vast majority of plants will kill you. The vast majority of plants are worse than Roundup. So it's just these these so-called edible ones that are that we have an ability to to sort of navigate uh, physiologically that are less toxic. But it doesn't mean they're not toxic. So and they can cause uh, your body to um, work in such a way or stop working in such a way that eventually precipitates cancer, but you're causing problems all the way down the line. You you can smoke for eight years. You may not develop cancer. It's causing harm the whole time. That could result in cancer. So you can eat vegetables, you can eat plants, you can eat these things that have carcinogens. They can cause harm well before they cause cancer. It may not ever cause cancer, but they can increase the inflammation and damage to your body. So that was the point that my, my professor was making. And we were very blown away by that. We were very taken aback. And he sort of looked at us funny. I remember thinking in my head, and I was like, well, but the vegetables are still good for you, though, right? And he just looked at us and just said, I don't eat vegetables. I don't eat salads. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. And I was like, right, done with plants. And so I just just automatically just defaulted into eating eggs and meat because that was the only thing left. I walked around the grocery store. Like, what is there to eat? Not, what the hell do I eat? And so I just ended up eating eggs and, and meat. And I felt better than I ever have in my entire life. I slipped off of it about five years later because I didn't really realized how significant what I was doing was. And I started having not as good performance athletically. I mean, before that, I was playing high-level rugby. I was playing, um, you know, the top levels in the U.S. I was playing professional level in England. And I felt amazing. I, I really felt better than I ever have in my life. And then I sort of slipped off of it. And I was thinking, why don't I feel is just superhuman amazing as I normally do? And I couldn't really figure it out. But looking back, that's exactly when I switched when I was 25. And I just thought I was getting older. But I was 25. It's over the hill now. I'm just dying. And so I just have to you know, move on with my life. But it was years later when I was 38 that I came across information that it said like, no, just humans actually are carnivores as a species. That's just the kind of animal that we are. That's what we were eating during the ice ages. We've been apex predators for over 2 million years. Apex predators by definition are carnivores. That's what that word means. And so I looked at that and I said, you know, that's what I was doing for those five years that I've never felt better in my entire life. 
And I was like, that's it. That's what I was doing. I was, I was living as a carnivore, I was eating as a carnivore, and my body was working the way it's supposed to work. And I started looking at this from, I was then a doctor, I was looking at this from a medical perspective. And I just realized that we're, that human beings are carnivores who are not eating as such. And we are getting diseases and illnesses uh, uh, in response to that. We're, we're carnivores, we're not living as such. And then just everything in medicine just starts slotting into place. We have so many of these chronic diseases that are only getting worse, they're only getting more prevalent, and yet we have no idea what's causing them. Okay, well, it's not genetic, right? Because you, you can't have a massive spike, you know, generation after, you know, decade after decade after decade, you're having, you know, the same sort of generation is being affected. So that's not genetic. That, that's way too early for that. So it's something environmental. And so if you, you know, you go to the zoo, you go to a park, they have signs that say, don't feed the animals. Uh, eating food that they didn't evolve on it, that they don't normally eat, it makes them very sick. But what do they get sick with? They get obesity, heart disease, liver disease, diabetes, cancer, arthritis, autoimmune diseases. Same things we get. But only when they're eating the things they're not supposed to eat. So I argue that these diseases are really not diseases per se, but they're toxicities and malnutrition brought about by eating a species of appropriate diet. And that was sort of my aha moment. So I looked at this and went, holy crap. That's why people are sick. That's why we're getting diabetes and heart disease and even cancer and Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and uh, autoimmune diseases. And, and these things significantly improve when you when you go back to eating uh, to our biological design. And so that's what I've been trying to do uh, for myself as well as my family and my patients. I try to recommend this to them. And I've seen near miraculous results, reversing things or putting them into remission or at least improving things that here to four people said, you cannot do that. You cannot reverse diabetes. It only gets worse. It's a progressive illness that only gets worse. We can temper it and slow it down with diet, exercise, lifestyle, medication, but it only gets worse. And yet now we can reverse it. And I saw that six years ago in my mother and my patients and other people reversing it, coming off their medication, coming off insulin. And then now we have uh, clinical trials in humans uh, with Verta Health uh, with a professor, Steve Finney, who actually showed that you do, in fact, reverse type 2 diabetes uh, by putting people on a ketogenic, high-fat, meat-based ketogenic diet, which a carbohydrate diet is a ketogenic diet. And so you know, now we now we have that, but I saw that firsthand, and and there were already animal models, animal clinical tri- or preclinical trials in animals uh, showing that you could reverse type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes, strangely enough, in animals by fasting or we almost call it fasting mimicking diet, which is just a ketogenic diet, because a ketogenic diet is sort of a four-letter word in some uh, medical circles. So they just they hide it by saying, "Well, it's it's hard to it, you know fasting causes all these benefits, but it's really hard to fast for long periods of time." So what about a, a, a diet that mimics the metabolic state you'd be in when you're fasting? Fasting mimicking diet, which is just a ketogenic diet. So that's how you sneak that one through and um, and get it approved. But um, I've just seen it do absolutely dramatic things for my health. And even though I didn't have a major problem, I just feel a thousand times better than I've ever felt before. So I I feel remarkably better. My family's doing much better and my patients are doing much better. And so this is why I'm trying to bring this out to as many people as possible so that they don't need to pay for doctors. They don't need to have all this expensive medication. They don't need to be beholden to, you know, the the food and and drug industrial complex that 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 are making us sick with the food that they're giving us. And then selling us the, the remedy for it. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good business model, but it's not really great for people. Hey, friend. 
Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, well, that's it's just incredible that your professor was preaching this, yeah, decades ago. I mean, mm-hmm. especially in a time where probably the saturated fat, you know, anti-red meat trend was was highest, was at its peak. So that's that's really cool that you had that exposure because obviously now it's it's um, motivated you to go on and inspire all these people, thousands of people across the world to change your health. And I do personally, yeah, I think we all know that changing your diet, eating real food. And to me, the, the nutrition debate is like what I wrote in my books. Like it's if you actually know anything about nutrition, bioavailability of nutrients and things like like it's not even a comparison of like meat, red meat to literally anything else. And then you throw in the the plant toxins, which is quite interesting. So that one, I guess people don't really like, this isn't really talked about. I think, you know, Stephen Gundry, Paul Saldino have also brought the anti-nutrient thing more to the mainstream, but they never really call it like carcinogenic. And then there's still this whole notion that all these plant compounds are are beneficial and if anything, anti-cancer and they're antioxidants. But as I know, most of those studies are done in petri dishes, and when they actually get into the human body, they don't actually act in the antioxidant way that they do. Um, really, there's just way more um, complexity there, and natural antioxidants that our body produces are, are way more effective. So I guess, how do you convince people or educate people on, on that a bit better? Because I, I would say that's still kind of like a missing piece, maybe, for, mm-hmm. for a lot of folks. Well, the thing is, you know, we, we have to, we have to, uh, you know, identify the fact that, that this is cherry picking, right? So they're saying, even, even if those things, and I agree with you, you know, that's right. You know, the, these studies that say, well, this is an antioxidant, this is anti-carcinogenic, you know, according to what, what was the test? Was this done in, in a clinical trial or an interventional trial with humans over the span of 50 years? And we saw that, you know, th- these guys got more cancer, these guys got less nose, your population studies, these guys eat more fruits and vegetables, they get yeah, yeah. You know, less cancer and they and they're saying, well, they eat less meat. Well, what are you considering meat? Things that contain meat, like pizza, like you know, McDonald's, like lasagna. So there's there's it's not isolating meat and eliminating it. So these are bad studies. These are bad studies made by bad people because I, they they honestly are because a lot of these people are intentionally leaving in these confounders to push a narrative. And when you correct for these confounders, a lot of them are, you know, people that eat meat are more likely to smoke and drink because you're told that meat's bad for you, you're told that smoking's bad for you, you're told that alcohol's bad for you. Say, so you know what? Screw you, I enjoy it. Well, one of those you enjoy because you're actually getting a positive response because your body wants it. The other two are drugs. And so, but they get they get lumped into the same category. And so, you know, when you when you eliminate out those confounding factors, uh, those, those issues go away. So in fact, there, there's an improvement from eating less meat at all. You know, you have po- population studies looking at the Maasai and Akikuyu, who are an African tribe that live next to each other. Maasai, very meat, uh, animal-based, and the Maasai and the Akikuyu, very plant-based. And the Maasai are massively healthier than the Akikuyu, and um, and they develop differently. They're five inches taller. They're 23 pounds heavier, lean body mass. They're 50% stronger. They have better dentition. They have lower rates of, of chronic disease like diabetes. And uh, they don't get uh, infections and all these other sorts of problems that Akikuyu are, are rife with. So, you know, they, 
you know, eating more meat, they're eating less plants and yet they have better health outcomes. So, you know, the, the one, and the ones that look at population studies in Western countries where people are just eating more plants and eating less meat, you take out those confounders and you, and you don't count pizza and, um, you know, and McDonald's as, uh, as meat, you know, then you, then you see a very different story and those, those, those benefits go away. Also, you know, when you're eating more fruits and vegetables, what are you not eating? Generally processed crap, because you're not comparing, you're comparing apples and oranges. You're comparing people that eat a highly processed diet that, you know, that doesn't have a lot of whole foods in it, like fruits and vegetables. And then you have people that, you know, pump, that, that are, are health user bias. So they're, they're eating more fruits and vegetables, more health conscious, more likely to exercise. They're more likely to get proper sleep, less likely to smoke and drink. And uh, and all the uh, all the rest. So you know, there's all these confounders. But let's say for a second that there are good things in plants, and there are. Why is that? Because plants are alive. So of course they're going to have things that are good for things that are alive. That's why you know everything's eating everything else because you're trying to get those nutrients and building blocks of life so that you can perpetuate your life. And the problem is you get the bad with the good. So maybe you are getting things that can be beneficial. I mean, this is like. You know, uh, people used to take foxglove because they had heart failure. They've realized, okay, well, this is digitalis in there. Let's isolate that, take that out, put it in a pill because how much of the dose are you getting? What else is it coming with? You don't know that, right? So it's better to take that out and put it in a pill and, and know exactly what you're getting in the dosage, like aspirin. You want to chew on willow bark? You want to take an aspirin. I'd rather take the aspirin, right? Because I know exactly what dose I'm getting and I'm not bringing in anything else that uh, I may not want, right? Also, it's going to taste disgusting to chew on a willow bark, you know? And so, so yes, I'm sure. So there are things that are beneficial, but what else are coming with it, right? So there are well over 100,000 chemicals in, in most plants, and if not every plant. And a lot of those are very harmful for you. So you, you can't just take those things in isolation because you're not getting those beneficial things in isolation. Now, there's bioavailability as well. So you have iron, you have, you have uh, copper, you have zinc, you have uh, you know, calcium, things like that. Tons of that stuff in all these different plants, but is that available? A lot of protein, all these sorts of things, is that available? The thing is, is that one of the ways that plants defend themselves is by binding these nutrients up in ways that other animals can't break down. So there's a lot of glucose, which we could use as energy in all plants. It's a structural component of plants is glucose, mainly in the fiber, cellulose. That's what a tree is, right? That's all glucose, you know, that has a lot of calories. You can burn it in your fireplace and get a lot of heat out of that. Does that mean that translates into calories that you can use? No, because you cannot break that bond. You can't break that, that, um, that bond between those glucose molecules to separate out the glucose. So that's useless to you, right? A lot of calories, you're not seeing any of them, right? And then there are a lot of nutrients. There's a lot of iron and, and calcium and things like uh, spinach, but you can't actually access it very well. And in fact, there was a study, I believe in the 1950s, where they looked at uh, giving people spinach because there was a high calcium level in it. So, oh, well, will this help boost calcium rates? No, in fact, it dropped their calcium rates because the calcium was bound up in ways that we couldn't access. And there's a lot of anti-nutrients like oxalates that would actually bind calcium from the food we're eating to get into our system and bind our serum calcium, actually strip that out of our body as well. And this is, this is why 
uh, 75% of kidney stones are calcium oxalate stones because they bind the calcium in your body and your body has to try to eliminate this. This can build up in your tissues and, uh, and cause problems. It can cause kidney stones, which can destroy your kidneys. So there, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of reasons why it's not a good idea to eat plants, but even, even the things that are beneficial, they, they don't come without a cost. And that's, that's the thing that people need to realize if they're even available at all, because like you said, is it even an antioxidant? Well, okay. If it is, or it isn't, is it, what's it coming with? And also do we need that antioxidant? Because these plants come with a lot more oxidants than they come with antioxidants. And so, you know, you don't actually need to do that. You know, you get, you have urea and uric acid. Oh my God, you don't want those. Well, they're some of your body's strongest antioxidants. It's actually good for you, you know? And so people um, get very worried about this. They think they have to, you have to take in antioxidants in your food. That's not necessarily the case. Your body makes these things. Your body actually knows how to run itself. You know, animals in the wild, they don't have to micromanage things. Oh, I need to get my supplements. I need to get my, they just eat. They eat the food that they're naturally designed to eat and they, the bodies work the way they're naturally designed to work. And when they step outside of that and are forced due to starvation or circumstances, eat things that they're not designed to eat, that's when the, the health problems start to come. Same for us. Yeah, I think leaning on the supplements or taking like a super concentrated mm -hmm. uh, version of a plant compound is, is probably not the best way. And it's not something we would have needed to do. And when you start to understand how effective naturally produced glutathione, melatonin are at, at scavenging free radicals, to mm -hmm. me, that was like a, a light bulb moment. But then another one was we've interviewed uh, Stefan von Fleet, who's doing a lot of this nutrient density research for comparing like grain fed versus grass fed um, beef. And he's showing that the phytochemical content, some of these beneficial compounds that you find in plants are actually in high quality beef and high quality meat, but you're not getting, you know, those negative anti-nutrients along with them. So again, it, to me, it shows that we don't really understand our food at all. Like there's, like you're saying, there's hundreds of thousands of compounds and Stefan said that as well. And he's probably one of the world's leading researchers on this. He's like, we're just scratching the surface, but we know we can get these beneficial compounds from meat as well if they're raised properly. So it's like we're, we have this filter. And then I know it's something you, Sean Baker, talked about, is, and you mentioned glyphosate, you know, all this pesticides and all these things. That's one of the most pervasive environmental toxins. And if you eat, you know, a meat-based diet, you're getting far, far less exposure to these sort of uh, herbicides and pesticides that are sprayed on our crops. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I, I did see an article. I don't know um, you know, what they're basing this on, but I, I saw an article last month that said that ruminant animals may be even able to filter out the glyphosate uh, pretty well. And so, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, someone some will say, well, this is why you want to eat plants because there's only the glyphosate on that plant, but you have an animal that's eating glyphosate uh, produce, you know, that's going to concentrate that glyphosate. So that's even worse. And it's like, well, that's an assumption that you have made. That's not, um, but where's the evidence for that? You have to actually have to to show some evidence that, that bears that out. And at least according to that article in uh, red meat, ruminant meat, uh, that's not the case. They're, they're able to, to detoxify that and filter that out before it gets to us. And, and that's the whole thing. You know, um, It's actually very difficult to filter out these toxins. It's actually very difficult to turn plant tissue into animal tissue, which is a completely different form of life. And that's why uh, only a subset of animals can even do that at all. Um, and they're very special, uh, very specialized animals that can do that. 
the vast majority of animals on earth um, as, as far as species are, are carnivores. You know, 70% of animals are carnivores, right? Because that's the food chain, right? You have, you know, sharks that eat fish, that eat fish, that eat fish, that eat fish, that eat algae, right? It's all the way down the food chain. So you have, you have the, you know, the herbivores at the bottom and you have carnivores eating those and then carnivores eating those and then those and then those and then, you know, polar bears eating seals that eat fish, that eat fish, that eat fish, that eat fish, that eat whatever. And so, you know, that's the thing, you know, so you're up and down that food chain, but predominantly animals eat meat. Predominantly animals are predators. And even herbivores will opportunistically eat smaller animals. Like, I mean, there's, I have a video on my, my uh, Instagram page of, of a horse in a barn. It's just sort of like snuzzling around. There's like these little baby chicks around him and just like eats one. And it's, it's just pretty jarring you know, to see that. It's just sort of chewing up this little baby chicken. The mom chicken sort of like runs in its face and gets all pissed off. But how much you can do? Um, you know, videos of, of deer and elk eating little rabbits and ducklings and things like that. They're opportunistic. Uh, opportunistically, we'll get that. Now, they can turn plants into animal tissue. But what's, what's easier than turning uh, plant tissue into animal tissue is you have animal tissue. And you just turn that into animal tissue. You know, we, we don't break down fiber. No vertebrate animal can break down fiber, but the bacteria in herbivores who eat fibrous plants can. That's how you know we're not an herbivore because we had a cecum, we have an appendix that used to be a four foot long cecum. That's where fiber used to pack into in gorillas and, um, and chimpanzees are called hindgut digesters. That's where fiber would pack in. And it's actually the bacteria that eat that fiber. So they're actually feeding the bacteria and then the bacteria feed them. So the bacteria, as, as a byproduct of breaking down cellulose, actually produce fatty acids and uh, short-chain fatty acids, which are 100% saturated. So they get the majority of their from saturated fat. And then when the bacteria die off, they, they absorb those as protein. So they, the bacteria eat the fiber and they produce fat and protein, which is what the animal then absorbs. And then they use that fat and protein to, to fuel and grow their body. We're doing the same thing except we can't turn fiber into fat and protein. We need fat and protein. And so the easiest way to do that is eating animals that have already done the hard work for us. They are made out of fat and protein. And so that's, that's, a, that's the normal state. And so, you know, arguing that, that a carnivore should switch to a vegetarian diet is, is a bit silly. I mean, like, you know, I mean, and people have done it. I swear to God. I mean, you know, memes go around of, you know, like lions taking something down and someone say, I can't believe it. Those lions had to be taught how to do that. If only they just they were taught <laughs> how to eat plants, you know, the world would just be this wonderful place. I'm like, okay, you, you had a very sheltered childhood, if that's what you think. Yeah. The, the ethics of, of eating meat to me is, is a bit uh touchy subject because you can't even reason with those types of people really. But if you get into the nutrition historical aspect, it's a bit more because um, yeah, it's, and it's interesting you mentioned the fiber piece because you mentioned the Maasai, another tribe that's often referenced is, is the Hadza. And I mm-hmm. think for a while they were studied as like this, they're eating all this fiber and that's why they have this proliferant gut bacteria diversity. It's like off the charts. It's like 3x the colony diversity compared to the average American, I think. Um, and then it was because they're eating all these uh, tubers, these fibers. And then a lot of those guys, uh, Paul, Brian Sanders, Anthony Gustin went over there and said that, you know, they're, they're not really eating these tubers at all. It's kind of mm-hmm. like a last resort. Um, they're 
hunting every day, the men at least. And if they do stumble upon some fruit or honey, um, they will take advantage of that. So it's like where it seems like ancestrally would be like opportunistic uh, omnivores with a heavy carnivore focus. But then again, and then for me, I watch this other YouTube documentary of this guy, I think his name's Mike Leach, who lived with the Hadza for years and years. Mm-hmm. And he just talked about, well, yeah, their microbiome is so diverse because they're not washing their hands. They're, you know, drinking water from just where it's sitting. They're butchering animals and then eating some of the organs raw. So he's like, that's probably what's contributing more to their diversity than the fiber. And yeah, so then for me, it's like, okay, that's a tribe at the equator. Both you and I, we're fair skinned, you know, we have even less access to things like fruit and honey and tubers. I live in Wyoming. So the way I think about everything is just from a local environment perspective, what, what actually would have been available. And I can tell you for about 10 months of the year, it's just meat. Um, mm. And maybe there's some berries and honey in the summer months for two or three months. But then again, and what I want to ask your opinion on is, is, is kind of that uh, context and that maybe nuance because fruit today and vegetables as well, I mean, they're completely different than even 200 years ago. We're talking, you know, 10x the size of fruit. We're talking every vegetable has come from the same brassica plant that's been bred and they've all been bred for yield. They've been bred for color. So how do you formulate that into kind of your position? And do you consider there any context for eating like a handful of wild berries or, or honey, maybe one or two months a year? If you're starving, sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, um, you know, and, and our bodies can tolerate, you know, quite a lot. And so, you know, you can, you can do a lot to your body. And, you know, if, if you're eating things in the, in the summer months, and then you can sort of recover from that in the winter months where you're sort of not having this sort of insult onto your system, that's certainly going to be better. Um, and, uh, but, you know, a lot of people, you know, like the Plains Indians, you know, they, they said that, yeah. you know, they, they would eat pemmican most of the year. They have a you know, bison drop, you know, they, they chase like a herd of buffalo over a cliff. They drop, they would eat meat the rest of the year. They say, well, there's a lot of berries and things like that. And it says who, you know, I mean, you, literally, I mean, it, it's just sort of trying to come up with that uh, to prove it. Well, well there's not a lot. I mean, there's, there's just straight up not a lot. And if you think yeah. about it, if they're this big, you know, that's like, yeah. How many berries do you have to eat in order to get the calories that, you know, something a buffalo could give you like immediately? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, the ROI exactly. is and, low. And, and if you look back at, at the actual historical record, so there was pemmican available that had berries in it. Mm-hmm. But that was because that, that was marketing to the Western people. Europeans that came over and they were buying pemmican from, from the Native Americans. They, you know, they was like, oh, this isn't sweet enough. This isn't good enough. So they started putting berries in it to sell it. But the ones they ate actually had no berries. So the pemmican they were eating was, was berry free. So, uh, and that's what they were eating the majority of the year. In the Great Plains, when, you know, you did have more than two months where you could eat other things. And so, you know, in, there, was a, there was an account that I read, you know, back in high school uh, or earlier of um, settlers in, in New England that we're looking at the, you know, the sort of the Southern Canadian, was now Canada sort of uh, people, Northern America, Northern sort of North New England sort of people. And they were saying that, that they were just shocked that they only ate meat. They, they just hunted year round. Didn't matter, you know, summer, spring, uh, fall, whatever. And uh, winter. And, and they were, he was pretty surprised. He said like, 
was like, well, I get it. You know, nine months out of the year, it's, land is locked in snow. You really can't grow anything. But, you know, for three months out of the year, surely they could live off the bounty of the land. That's what I said. I always stuck with me. I always thought it was hilarious. But, you know, surely they could live off the bounty of the land, but they don't. Even then, they choose to hunt. Even then, they choose to just eat meat. And this guy was just really baffled by it. And so, you know, while you could have access to these sorts of things, it didn't necessarily mean that people actually ate it. It was, again, it was, it was a food of last resort. Now, that, that can confer an, a survival advantage. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's optimal. Um, it's optimal to live. And so, you know, if you need to live and, and you know, being able to eat some berries and fruit or tubers um, and, and some honey to survive, yeah, that's, that's a great advantage. But we have been apex predators for about 2 million years. Apex predators, by definition, are carnivores. That's just what that means. And so, you know, apex predators don't graze, right? You're eating other animals. And so opportunistically, in extremity, sure. But, you know, the Hadza are a great example of, of what our ancestors were, were living like or eating like 50,000 years ago or even 20,000 years ago. Because this is, this is a hunter-gatherer population, but they've been sort of pushed off their land. They're, they're sort of isolated to this specific area. They're not able to hunt the big game that they normally would. And so, you know, the average sort of thing they get is like the size of a bush baby, you know? And so they have to turn to honey. They have to turn to tubers. They have to turn to other sorts of things in order to survive. Um, so that's not the same thing. Up until about 20, 15, 20,000 years ago, our ancestors, maybe even 12,000 years ago, our ancestors were hunting megafauna, mammoth, massive, you know, giant sloths and cave bears and all these sorts of things. So we were not, we were not uh, restricted to, you know, what the Hadza have available to them. And it's actually after that, that, that uh, in these places where this megafauna was gone, it just didn't have the game. That's when people started moving to agriculture out of necessity and to survive. And that allowed us to survive, but that's not necessarily, again, what's optimal. And so, you know, they, um, that's not a great example of that. And, you know, and the, and there's different sort of people, I forget the guy's name, but he's, he's one of the people that the, the, uh, you know, the vegans always push. And I said, Oh, well, if you look at the, it's an odds that actually they're like 60% of what they're eating is, is, is plants. It's like, yeah, that's not, that's not how we ever ate, you know, uh, more than, you know, since agri, since, uh, megafauna died out, it's just not. And so that's not a really good example of that. And they're saying like, well, you know, we'd still eat really, even in the hunter gatherer days, you're still really lean. Should be really low fat because wild animals are pretty lean, not the megafauna. Yeah. That's something that I wanted to get into because that's, I think about that often because how modern beef, for example, compares to say an ancestral diet in terms of protein and fat, because you're right. Like, you know, I hunt, I've hunted elk, super lean, deer, antelope. I mean, if you get like a bear, bear is actually some more fat content. Um, but the wild game we have now is, is very lean. And, and the same goes for exactly what you said about the Hadza. That's, it's totally true. I think they might try and break the rules occasionally, but they, yeah. they're not allowed to hunt, you know, the big wild game. So they're not getting any fat really. So they have to, you can't survive on protein alone. So then yeah. you have to ch- turn to carbs or fat. So do you think, well, I had, uh, and what I want to get into a little bit later, I, I talked to Laszlo Boros, who I know you have mm. talked to as well on deuterium uh, this week, but yeah. he mentioned as well from the fat perspective, obviously he's very bullish on, on fat consumption. 
from the deuterium perspective, but he mentioned how we used to crack open bones of megafauna and get a lot of bone marrow. So we actually had a way higher fat diet than people realize. And, and that's something I've thought about for a long time. So are you in the camp that it seems that we ate a pretty fat heavy diet in terms of like compared to protein? It does. Yeah. Yeah. It does look like that. And, um, it, it seems that, you know, potentially because we've been carnivores more recently than other, you know, lions, key lions, canines and things like that. So we, we just require higher fat content. Mm. I mean, you look at, look, look at Lewis and Clark, you know, their expedition across America, they ate meat, you know, they're going across the plains and things like that. It was just teeming with life, teeming with animals. They get in the mountains. They're like, well, this sucks. We'll go to the mountains now to hunt. Right. Yeah. And they were saying, this is bullshit. We need to get back into the plains where we get some food because it's just like, it's just like a nature documentary, you know, it was like the savannas, which just these just herbs of gazelle and elk and this is and that's just everywhere. There's just life everywhere. And so it was so easy uh, to get food. And, and they found that, that um, they eat a lot of fat. They didn't eat the organs necessarily. They gave those to their dogs and, uh, but they high fat and the ones that were eating lower fat were the ones that died. Uh, was it that they didn't make it? So you know, you really that that seems to be you know, in those harsh sort of environments. You really do need the fat. I mean, you look at those um, survival TV shows that are on now, and everyone says like, you need the fat. This is a stores of fat, 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 yeah. fat. And then you know, like a wolverine will break in, and they go and eat the whole tin of fat because fat makes the animal kingdom go round. It's very, very important. And so uh, I do think that we're we are. Um, it's required for us to eat a lot of fat that, you know, it's an essential nutrient. It's essential for our bodies. It's not just a calorie source. And so the, there's a lot of evidence for that. There's um, a Dr. Mickey Bendor who did uh, a lot of, he's, he's a PhD in paleoanthropology and archeology. span And he's, he's done a lot of research on this showing that humans are apex predators top of the food chain for at least the last 2 million years. And he, you know, shows that you know, the average, the average, um, well, the average size of an animal, the larger you are, the more fat you have as a proportion of your body mass. And so that's what we're going after these big megafauna. We're going after the alphas. We're going after the most healthy, most, not the sick, the weakly, the skinny. We were like, that's the one, that's the big boy. That's the one I want. And so we're, you know, we're going for, you know, trophy bucks, you know, for millions of years. And, and that's because that's generally where you had the most healthy individuals that had the higher fat content. You know, even in lean animals, you still have abdominal fat, you have momentum, you have visceral fat and things like that. And you can get that. And this is what the Native Americans would take. And they would trim all that off and they'd boil that down to tallow and they'd mix that in with, um, you know, the, the leaner meat. And that's how you get uh, pemmican. And that's what they'd eat throughout the year. And a lot of accounts say that they actually preferred that. They preferred the pemmican. Um, they didn't actually, they're having steaks and roasts and things like that. That wasn't actually what they preferred. They preferred the pemmican and it could be this because it had a higher fat content and that's what, that was what they preferred. Certainly, uh, when we were hunting megafauna, we were getting a lot more fat. And as the megafauna starts thinning out, that's when you start seeing roasting of the big marrow bones and cracking them open, getting the marrow because we needed the fat. And that's a point that Mickey Bendor makes as well. And so it wasn't until the megafauna ran out and our fat content felt well short of what it should be that we started moving over to uh, more agrarian sources of food, 
not even just just uh, uh, plant agriculture, but also animal agriculture and and cultivating dairy animals and dairy cows. You know the you know Genghis Khan and the Mongol horde, they were carnivores. They ate horse meat, drank horse blood, and fermented mares milk. So um, it had to be fermented because they're they're extremely lactose intolerant. You know, but that could be because of that the leanness of horse that you needed that increased fat content from the dairy. So they, they incorporated dairy as well. The Maasai incorporate dairy and yeah. the milk from their cattle is actually much more fatty than traditional milk. Traditional milk is 3.5 to 4% milk fat. Theirs is about 8%. So, you know, they, they're getting a lot more fat from that as well. So that is something that uh, seems to be necessary when you, when you see people, well, you look at animals in general, they generally getting, around one to two grams of fat per gram of protein, even herbivores, right? So gorillas, again, break down fiber into fat and protein. They get about, they get about one to one grams of fat to protein. So they'll get about, which ends up being about 70% calories from fat. Um, and then other animals, other primates will get different, different levels of that. And there's a direct relationship between the percentage of, of calories from fat that a primate gets in the wild and their relative brain size to body mass. And so, you know, that seems to be a thing. And we look at the Inuit, they're just eating blubber, you know, they're eating, they're eating fish, but they're also eating that with blubber, with uh, polar bear blubber, with whale blubber, with seal blubber. And so fat is a mainstay of their diet as well. And I, I, I so I think of it that way. It's not, it's not a calorie source. It's like, oh, I want to, I want to lose calories. So or I want to lose fat. So I can get less calories. It's not really the right way to think about it. Uh, first of all, you know, just going back to the fact that, you know, wood has a lot of calories, but it has no <laughs> nutrition, you know, so that whole idea of calories in, calories out is a bit useless um, because these things, we're chemical factories, we're not combustion engines. And and fat is an essential nutrient. There's essential fatty acids that you have to have. And there are essential nutrients that are fat soluble that you have to have. And, and then there are other things in the lean meat as well, but you need the fat is very good for us. And it seems most people when doing a carnivore diet do best with that one to two grams of fat to one gram of protein. Is that kind of where like traditional or just say 100% grass fed beef is at right now? Or is that with, you know, maybe cooking it in butter or cooking it in tallow? Like, are you going out of your way to add more fat as well? Or are you kind of just eating, let's say ground 100% grass fed beef? It depends. It depends. So I don't do 100% grass fed just because I don't, I don't really have access to it. And though I prefer it, you know, in, in the states I can just buy a cow. And so I, you know, went to, yep. you know, I went to a, 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 a rancher. I just got a 10 year old cow that was only eating grass its entire oh, life. Nice. It was amazing. Like older cows, just phenomenal. It's so much better. Um, it's more beefy flavor. Mm-hmm. And you know, the fat's just dark yellow. And I, I just felt like a superhero on this stuff. I mean, I really just like supercharged. And so that was, that was fantastic, but it depends on how they trim it because this, the fashion right now is to trim off most of the fat because people like don't want the fat. They want a little bit of fat for the flavor, but most of it they want off. And so they, they trim it off and throw it away, which I think is a big mistake. And so if you get, if anyone does buy a you know, quarter cow or a cow or whatever, um, tell them to save every scrap of fat, put it in the hamburger. Um, you know, keep big ridges of fat on the roasts and on the on the on the steaks, and then every little bit of excess fat that they trim off, put that in the hamburger, and uh, because it's just amazing, it's it's amazing for you. So it's not as much as as you might think, because they're you know the the fatty tissue isn't 
100% grams of fat, right? And, and the lean tissue is at 100% grams of protein. So two to one grams of fat to protein works out to being around 65% lean, 35% fatty ground beef, right? So even getting, you know, 70, 30 ground beef, it's, it's, it's actually, is a pretty good ratio. You, know, you just don't want to get that super lean stuff, right? So you want the fattier cuts. You want to stick to the fattier cuts. You want to get your butcher not to trim it off if you can. And, uh, and then you do well. So in Australia, things are, things are much more, <laughs> they're trimmed to distraction, really. I mean, it's, it's just way more than they should be. And so at that point, you sort of have to sort of add things in. Like a ribeye in America is about 70% calories from fat, depending on how it's trimmed. And so, you know, like a, like a choice sort of one, like a prime is well over that, right? So it, uh, it, depends, on, it depends on the cut, but um, it depends on how they, they trim it. So in Australia, they, have, um, they don't have ribeyes unless it's sort of on the bone. And then if you're getting it sort of just as, as a steak, it's, it's um, called scotch filet. And that's because they trim off just all the fat around it. And I just, I think that's criminal. But so, so for that sort of thing, yeah, you probably have to add butter. But if you're getting, you know, a butcher that's not a, you know, sadist and they can actually, you know, leave some of the fat on, then you can usually get it with just the, the fatty cuts and, and, you know, the fattier hamburger. Yeah, that's nice. I've been, I've ordered whole cows for a few years now and I'm always like, give me all the trim fat. I usually yeah. just make my own tallow because, yeah, I think you have to. And especially if you have like elk or venison or something like that, it's super lean. I mean, it mm-hmm. just, it, it feels like, yeah, a little bit's missing there from a, from a taste perspective, but it's still delicious. But yeah, that's interesting in Australia. I mean, it's just such a waste first off. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really nutrient dense food right yeah. there. So yeah, that's interesting. But the butter, I guess, maybe isn't as consistent. So I guess in terms of dairy, then you're probably not a huge fan of dairy because it's more recent um, in our advent kind of, as you're discussing, mm-hmm. something we just adapted to using because, you know, we're very resourceful. I feel like as a race, we just saw, hey, this is a source of nutrients that will allow us to survive. We're missing fat. There's no more megafauna. And that kind of maybe took its place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, dairy in general, a lot of people didn't have problems with it. I mean, most people were fine. But, you know, certainly anyone with the autoimmune issue or inflammatory issues, they, they seem to have a problem with dairy. And casein is the, is the protein in milk. And that, mm-hmm. and that seems to be pretty pro-inflammatory people. This is where you know, A1 and A2 milk comes in. And A2 milk is less inflammatory than A1 milk, but it's actually still partially inflammatory. So, you know, if you do fine with dairy, then that's great. But I, I no, I don't, I don't think people should be eating dairy as a mainstay unless they have to, you know, like the Messiah or, or, you know, Genghis Khan and things like that. But it's, um, I use it as a condiment and like rarely and only as a condiment. So like I have, I would melt some cheese onto meat, mm-hmm. right. Or have a slice of cheese with a bite of meat sort of thing. Um, but otherwise I'm just eating meat and the 99% of what I'm eating is just, is just meat. And yeah, that's just really just beef really. So it's infrequent that I would, that I would have dairy. And, uh, and if I were to do it, it's just as a condiment, it's just to just add a bit of flavor for what I'm doing. You have a hamburger patty, um, you just get a bit bored with that, you know, sometimes and so you just melt some cheese on top of it, you know, and, uh, and that's fine. I, I avoid milk. Milk has enough carbohydrates that they'll, it can raise your insulin levels and raise your blood sugar levels, raise your insulin levels and, and kick you out of a metabolic state that I think you want to be in. And so I think that is our primary metabolic state. You know, we talk about ketosis as being an alternate fuel source and 
as shocking your system and it's this aberrant sort of um, state of nature. But I mean, if you think about it, it's really not. You know, we, we are designed to eat meat. We've been eating meat for millions of years. Other carnivores, 70% of all animals, are not eating carbohydrates are all in the same metabolic state. So this is not a fasting state. If I eat 4,000 calories of ribeye, I'm not fasting. So whatever else you want to say about my metabolism, uh, you cannot say that it's a fasting metabolism. So we've misnamed that, right? So I think the only reason we've called that a fasting metabolism and you know, a carbohydrate insulin-driven uh, metabolic state, uh, a fed state, because by the time we were able to look at our biochemistry at a molecular level, everyone was eating carbohydrates. So it's like, oh, when you eat, it looks like this. When you don't eat, it looks like this. Okay, right. But if you eat anything else on earth, it also looks like you're not eating anything from a metabolic standpoint. And so that's the same metabolic state of most animals in nature. Because again, they're all running on fat and protein. Carnivores are running on fat and protein because they're eating animals with fat and protein. And, they're, and the herbivores that are eating fibrous plants, they're turning that into fat and protein. So they're all in this ketogenic starvation state. It's not a starvation state. That's our natural metabolic state. And that's the one I think you should stay in uh, insofar as um, as you can, like if you're if you're eating what you're naturally supposed to do, like so if, if I eat a big protein rich but really more fat rich meal, that amount of protein does have an insulin response, but it's small, so maybe that kicks you out of ketosis. I don't know. I don't really care. All I know is that, that we're designed to eat that, and so whatever happens to our body is supposed to happen. So I just let nature take its course, and so I just try to get the base inputs correct. So working on fundamental principles, you know, not getting lost in the weeds, not, you know, missing the forest for the trees. It's like, well, this little thing happens and this little other thing happens. What's at the base? What's the base of the pyramid? We are carnivores. We've been living as apex predators for 2 million years. What we're eating during the ice ages, what could you eat during the ice ages? Same thing the Inuits are eating now, meat and fast, right? Now they're, you know, shipping in garbage, but that's not what they traditionally would eat. So what we traditionally eat, is meat and fat. And so if you are just eating that, your body's going to do what it's supposed to do. If you're in ketosis all the time, great. If you're not, who cares? You're eating what you're supposed to eat. Your body's doing what it's supposed to do. But I certainly don't want to alter that and artificially kick myself out of this metabolic state by eating too many carbohydrates and and milk falls into that category. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And for me, it's like... I think the difference between fermented dairy, like cheese or yogurt and milk is, is huge. And same with raw A2 compared to like pasteurized. But that's yeah. a lot of people are aware of that at this point. The other thing I'm curious to get your opinion on is, is probably seafood because I talked to Michael Crawford and he's probably a world expert on brain development. And he talks about how actually 20, 30,000 years ago is when we had pre-peak brain capacity. And that aligns with kind of when we were you know, last really all in that hunter-gatherer mindset. And his thesis is that we, you know, ate ruminants and sufficient amount of seafood. So it was DHA, arachidonic acid, all the minerals, all the nutrients. 
And then once we started farming, becoming, you know, eating less nutrient dense foods, that, that's led to this diminishment in brain capacity. Have you subscribed to seafood at all? Do you eat it? Do you think that has a place or yeah, what are your thoughts there? Certainly has a place. You know, there's quite a lot of omega-3s and the specific omega-3s that you need for brain and neural development, like DHA and EPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, 70% of your of the solid matter of your brain is fat. 20% of that fat is DHA. So this is a very important compound that you need. And, you know, about 20% is, is uh, cholesterol as well. So both are very, very important. And so, yeah, so, so brain size, when we started eating meat, our ancestors went from the herbivorous past six to 8 million years ago. And, um, our brain size and height started just getting up a bit more and more and more started growing, 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 uh, eating more nutrient dense food. We're actually, that was one thing I saw a study a long time ago or, you know, yeah, publication where they're talking about, I had this big brain, what could support it? Well, it must be something really nutrient dense, you know, like really high calorie source, all this sort of stuff. Uh, must be honey, you know, must be just pure sugar, just a bunch of honey, all this sort of stuff. And I was, I was like, well, that's, that's, the, that's not really smart. And I was a kid. It was just like, well, actually fat has, is more nutrient, is more calorie dense than honey. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? It's nine calories per gram, whereas honey, you know, sugar is four calories per gram. So that, that doesn't make sense. You know, so honey is not more nutrient dense than fat I mean, final density, right? You know, it's, it's unit per um, mm-hmm. measure weight. So um, and then they were talking about like, well, you're to grow this big brain, you need this thing, you need to eat this plant, and then this thing, and you need fish, you need this. There's all these different things that are shown on the map. They're all from different different sorts of things. And it's like, okay, well, I can think of one food source right now that by definition has every nutrient, everything you need to to grow and build and maintain a brain. Brains, right? So, and that's actually what uh, we see in the fossil record. So, a couple million years or the first uh, sharpened tool that we found, um, probably Australopithecus 3.3 million years ago, um, that wasn't the first tool that that they were using. They were actually using stones as pound stones to crack open the skulls of uh, carrion animals, dead animals that had been hit clean, you know, by whatever killed them or found them first. And then, you know, put the, the skull is intact. And so they crack it open, they get at the brains. It was very high nutrient dense. So we were sort of scavengers, but we're clever scavengers. And we're able to get, get at the brain, which is very, very important for that. And then with the, the advent of the, the ice ages, when ice shelves started coming down, that's when you see this marked increase, exponential growth in uh, brain capacity and height. And that's when, when we, our ancestors who were able to survive as apex predators were the ones that survived, right? And so we're descended from those, those survivors. And so that's where you see this exponential growth up. And then about, yeah, 20,000 years ago, bang, it's this sharp decline. It's a mm-hmm. straight line down. And that's because, you know, the advent of agriculture, creating the capacity, the brain size of humans, of adult male humans dropped by 11%. And the adult female brain size dropped by 17%. It, but it was immediate and height dropped by five inches and teeth started becoming crowded and crooked and jaws were misdeveloped and uh, signs of, of uh, poor wound healing and infections like tuberculosis and things like that immediately after that. And there's a, there's a page out of a, of a textbook from Cambridge University that I have pinned up to the top of my, my Instagram profile. And it shows a picture of, of 
pre-agriculture, post-agricultural man. And, you know, here's the guy much taller and this guy much shorter and all the different sort of disparities and health issues. And I just said, you know, uh, around 10,000 years ago, in, in every population anywhere in the world, regardless of where it was, regardless of the time, regardless of the plants they started eating, when they made a switch to an agrarian lifestyle, they all met with these same declines in health and development. And they all had, you know, and it was, it was like their physiology was severely negatively impacted by malnutrition and, uh, and negative effects in their nutrition. And so um, as far as the fish are concerned, big fan, totally fine with that. As long as you're okay with that, sometimes people would be a bit um, sensitive to it. You know, there are some studies that sort of suggest there's, there's a slight pro-inflammatory effect in seafood. Does that differentiate between farmed and wild caught? You know, or to say, I would never eat farmed fish. Nah, yeah. You know, I mean, well, there's no, there's no omega-3s in there anyway because they get the omega-3s from what they eat because it's all down the food chain. It's fish that eat fish that eat fish that eat fish that eat algae. And that's where you're getting those omega-3s, right? The DHA and EPA. So it has to go up the food chain. So if you're feeding them a bunch of wheat, soy, corn pellets, you know, there's none of that in there. There's ALA in plants. But um, that's not that's not the right kind of uh, of omega three. Uh, good for your heart. Doesn't do anything for your brain. It doesn't doesn't necessarily convert into DHA or EPA. Um, well, it does at like what like point five percent efficiency or something. It's really I, bad. I mean, if, yeah. if, that, if that's right? even real, yeah. yeah. Well, if it even does at all, <laughs> you know. And so it's like you know, well, walnuts it, are a great source of omega threes, folks. Go on. Yeah, well, that's it. They say, well, eat flaxseed. There's a ton of omega-3s, yep. wrong omega-3s, you know? I mean, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's um, you're looking at a category as opposed to the specific thing that you need, right? So you're saying like, oh, this has a lot of fat. That's good. Well, which fat? Trans fats? Not the fats that you want, really. No, no, as long as it's fats, that's okay. Well, no, actually. So as long as it's omega-3s, that's, that's exactly what you want. No, it's not. You need, you need specific omega-3s for your, your brain and neural development. Fish have a lot of that. You know, that's what we call fish brain food. And, and, and it was because also they're, you know, they had a lot of uh, unsaturated fats and things like that. Obviously, saturated fats are the horrible one. Well, no, actually, they're really, really, really good for you. And your brain is largely made out of these very long chain fatty acids that, um, you know, that, that don't come from plants at all. They don't exist there. They're 20, 22 chain fatty acids. We have a hard time making them ourselves. We really do need them from the food we eat, from the saturated animal fats that we eat. And um, omega threes are, are part of that as well. Uh, they're unsaturated, and um, so the fish because they don't want to go solid. They're in the Arctic water. They don't want to turn into a, a that's right, you know, brick of lard or something like that. You know, so they have to sort of stay uh, liquid in those temperatures. But um, and they have a lot of omega threes, and that's very good. You know, some people would say, well, you know, if you're eating especially fish up the food chain, you can get a higher concentration of, of heavy metals, and that's certainly a new problem uh, that exists. But, um, you know, you can eat sort of further down the food chain or just, you know, infrequently and, you know, just mix it in here and there. Um, fish oil supplements aren't that great because uh, they, again, it's, it's an unsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat, and that double bond makes it unsaturated fat. And that's a point of attack for oxidation and becomes oxidized. So the majority of, of fish oil supplements are already oxidized and they're no good. Um, as far as we were probably eating a lot of fish as we were doing this, especially during the ice age, there's a lot more landmass, isn't there? So, you know, were people only on the coasts or were they sort of mixed in as well? 
probably all over the place, right? So the ones yeah, that are yeah. more interior probably not having the same access to these sorts of things. But well, there used to be freshwater fish before we poisoned everything, and now we definitely can't eat those. So, yeah. but it's probably a mix, right? It had I'm, I'm sure it was a mix, and especially like in the in the ice ages, like actual ice shelves, you know, that's mm. going to be in your interior. That's going to be a bit more difficult. But the, yep. you know, the good yep. news is, is that animals in nature that eat what they're supposed to eat also have a lot of omega threes. Yep. You know, and so you know, grass fed fish or generatively raised cows actually have a really really good amount of omega three omega six ratio. You start you start grain feeding them uh, intensively. You know, sort of ninety five percent grain feed for three months. Um, that can that can sort of ruin that, and you get much less omega threes and much more omega sixes, which gets out of balance. You really do. You need omega six, but you don't need more than a certain amount, and you don't want to overwhelm the amount of omega threes that you're getting in. You want you want to around you know, one-to-one omega-3s to omega-6s or more omega-3s than omega-6s. And you can get that certainly with, with grass-finished cows. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's spot on and it makes a lot of sense, especially contextually, again, as well. Like you mentioned, the, the PUFA content, the omega-3 content is higher in Arctic fish because they're mm. in cold water. I think it's probably the same um, if you're living in a colder environment and, and that goes back to the Hadzo or maybe something that people bring up is like tropical areas. Yeah. There'd be more fruit available, but, um, you know, people like mm-hmm. us, especially Europeans, again, it's like there, there would not have been almost anything available. Right. Yeah. So you, if someone's going to be carnivore for sure, that makes them, I mean, even more sense is, is folks of our heritage, I, I would say, um, certainly. And, and if you get into the, the mitochondrial kind of research, which is something I talked about with Laszlo. And I'm curious your opinion, because it seems more and more is coming out from um, the research that is supporting ketosis, supporting a more carnivore-based diet. And, and for me, it's all about, yeah, the seasonal context. Like when people are eating bananas and in Wyoming, like to me, that makes no sense. And you're giving your body all the wrong inputs in terms yeah. of what season it is, because we know Temperature, oxygen, um, light is is all dictating mitochondrial health, and meat meat is always in season. And then Laszlo does all the research, uh, or a lot of it on on deuterium. So how how have you considered these newer perspectives, I guess, or alternative perspectives as well as being beneficial for carnivore? Because I think it aligns quite nicely. It absolutely aligns very well, and I, I think it's all you know. It, it all explains why things work better on a carnivore diet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I really do like the, you know, the base principle, the fundamental underlying principle that we are carnivores this is how we've been living for millions it's of logic, years. It's logic, the logic thought, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, so you, you eat what you're supposed to eat. Your body works the way it's designed to work. And, and then you start looking at the mitochondria and you're like, wow, that actually makes a huge difference. When we start damaging mitochondria, you start developing things like cancer. The hallmark of cancer yep. is that their mitochondria are damaged or destroyed. They can't function properly. Can't go through oxidative phosphorylation. Um, but you get mitochondrial damage. A lot of other things uh, start start getting impaired as well. And uh, you, you know, Laszlo's show this from deuterium. Deuterium being uh, heavy water, uh, you know, heavy hydrogen. You know, make water with that, um, and, uh, and that actually really damages uh, the, the mitochondria because you have these hydrogen transport um, molecules in the in the um, surface of the, of the mitochondria and they come through and you have a deuterium, which is, uh, you have hydrogen, it's just one proton. Deuterium has a proton and a neutron. So that's twice the weight and size of, uh, of a normal hydrogen molecule. So it's, it's a massive difference. 
uh, of uh, you know that isotope. It's a very very it's, it's the largest difference of any isotope, right? And so it has it has a lot of a lot of issues that it that it uh, causes in the body if you have too much of this. And this one of the things is it destroys these little transport molecules that are supposed to bring bring across this proton, hydrogen, right? As you get this double thing coming through, it's just like throwing a bowling ball through a you know a blender. It just destroys the thing, right? And yeah. so that can destroy that, and you get too much of that, and, and the mitochondria just get overwhelmed, and uh, and and you can't really process and function energy properly. And you get a lot of problems from that. And then you look at ketogenic diets. There've been studies showing that that people going just being on a ketogenic diet for three or four months, they get four times the number of mitochondria, and they're four times as effective. Why is this? Insulin goes down. This turns on a lot of genes and epigenetic sort of effects that that trigger mitophagy. People are autophagy, where the body is recycling older cells and sort of replacing them with newer, better, faster uh, cells that that work more appropriately. But you don't just trash the whole cell necessarily. You can actually pick out individual organelles within the cell and replace those. So that so when you do this, mitochondria is called mitophagy. So you're replacing the old senile sort of uh, mitochondria that may be precancerous. And then you replace that and turn it into a new one that's buzzing around and doing its job very effectively. Mitochondria are very important. They don't just make ATP. They do make ATP, the powerhouses of the cell, but they're also like the sailors on a ship. They're running around up and down the mask and rigging, pulling lines and doing all these sorts of things. So they're going up to a specific organelle and they're pushing energy so that a reaction can happen. So they're drivers of this ship. And so when they're, they're going to a certain area, say in your brain, in your neurons, They'll go to a certain area and say, hey, release this neurotransmitter. Here's some energy. Go do it. If you need that signal to go, that mitochondria is old or those mitochondria are old, they're slower to get there and they're not going to produce as much energy in, in the right amount of time. So you're a day late and a dollar short and you start getting neurological dysfunction. And so people like Professor uh, Chris Palmer and Dr. Georgia Ede, uh, Chris Palmer is a, a professor at Harvard, has shown that putting people on a keto carnivore diet um, and improving their mitochondrial function actually reverses and puts into remission things like schizophrenia, uh, major depression, um, OCD, bipolar, ADHD, even autism, right? But but schizophrenia, you know, dietary changes are that he's found are better treatment for schizophrenia and major mental health issues than are gold standard treatments and medication and therapy today. So just those dietary uh, relationships uh, make a bigger bigger impact than, than anything we've been able to discover ever since uh, before now. So just go back to first principles. What are you supposed to eat? You're not supposed to eat carbs. You're not supposed to eat alcohol. You're not supposed to smoke cigarettes. You're not supposed to do all these things. Those things start damaging your body and you get these effects. And so if you just go back to that, mitochondria work better. You start replacing these things. They start working better. You have to start going through autophagy and mitophagy. You start uh, you know, producing more mitochondria as a result, your brain works better, your body works better, your energy dynamics work better, your, your metabolism works better, and everything works just better. And, and that is what you would expect if we are going towards our natural biological design. If you eat what you're supposed to eat, then your body should work the way it's supposed to work. If it starts breaking off of that, then you know maybe you're not eating what you're supposed to eat, just like there are signs of the zoo say, don't feed the animals, it gets them very sick. If they, they're not supposed to eat, we forget that we're animals and these same biological laws apply to us. And it's the same idea. Why would it make them sick? Because it's interrupting their normal physiology. 
it's interrupting their normal metabolism. It's interrupting their normal uh, cellular biology. And so they can't work properly. So they just start working abnormally. And we call that diseases. But really what they are is you're just disrupting your metabolism and you're disrupting your physiology because you're eating something inappropriate and your body's trying to adapt and respond. But it's not going to be perfect. So you just go back to that. You just go back to uh, eating a normal diet for your biology, a species-specific diet, and your bodies are going to start start working better. And I think all of this um, is is you know evidence of that. There's so many people that have come to a carnivore diet from very different sides of things. You know, Laszlo has come to it from a deuterium standpoint. Say, wow, this deuterium really bad. How can I how can I affect this? Okay, well, you know, if you are a ketogenic diet. High meat diet. This is less deuterium. I mean, you're not, and you can make molecular water and um, uh, metabolic water, and your 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 mitochondria actually make low to no deuterium water. Every one kilo of of uh, fat that you burn, yep. when in ketosis, you produce 1.1 liters of zero deuterium water. So your average deuterium levels are much lower. Your mitochondria are doing much better. That's why I'm going to do this. I came to this. From a plants are trying to kill you aspect, I'm like, well, I'm not eating that crap. Um, and and a lot of those things, a lot of those, um, I was talking about Professor Thomas Seifert, he's one of the top cancer researchers in the world. You know, I told him that story. You know, of my cancer biology professor who said that to me, uh, talking about all these plant carcinogens, and he said, you know, you know, all of those plant carcinogens, they all damage the mitochondria. That's how they cause cancer, or or increase your risk of developing cancer. And then seed oil, who have a lot of problems with seed oil, mm-hmm. like a sixes, those damage the mitochondria as well. Yep. So there's, it all comes back to, yes, the mitochondria, the underlying dysfunction of our mitochondria affects so many different systems in our body. Um, but it comes down to you know, eating what you're designed to eat. If you eat what you're designed to eat, you're going to work the way you're designed to work. And I think it's fascinating all these different uh, avenues that we, we've been figuring out how they're getting disrupted and why they're getting um messed up um that's great but you don't even need to know all that all you need to know is you're designed to eat this way you eat this way your body's going to work the way it's supposed to work yeah i think it's the complicated science that's fun for us to dive down to but for the average person it's it's the simple conclusion and you highlight that perfect I'm, i totally agree that mitochondrial dysfunction is pretty much the root of of most or not mm-hmm. all chronic disease but my last question, because I know you need to go, is there are other things that cause this outside of food and diet and toxins we mentioned as well. And it kind of aligns with ancestral living is, you know, what else are you doing? You know, are you prioritizing like circadian rhythm, like blocking artificial light, um, other things that maybe are more aligned with ancestral living that maybe you don't talk about as much as, you know, you do with diet, of course? I do. I do think that 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 plays a huge role. It's something that I'm I'm learning more about myself. But yeah, of course, it's you know your brain tells time by the the frequency of light coming into it, mm-hmm. right? And because it's it's used to having sunlight coming in, we we we've, we've grown up, you know, as a species in the sun, right? We're not troglodytes. We didn't grow up in a cave, and so when we get up in the morning, we get that morning light. Our brain goes, okay, it's morning. This is the time of day. These are the hormones you need. And you kick off your circadian rhythm, and you sort of have this timer on the different things that are going to happen that day, as far as you know, hormonally and metabolically, that sort of kicks that off. And so, you know, more you're trapped inside with artificial light. Brain doesn't know what the hell is going on. It's just getting it's getting weird signals. It's just just okay. It's the same time of day all the day. You know, it doesn't know what the hell is going on. Um, you know, so getting that light, and when I do try to do that, 
Um, I do try to get out in the sun whenever possible. Uh, after dark, I've started to use uh, the blue light blocking glasses. Nice. And I've, I have found that, well, it's weird for me. I've never worn glasses, so it's sort of, sort of big. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sort of looking at things sort of like weird to focus, um, even though they're not prescription. They, um, I find that I sleep much better. I, you know, I get to the point where I'm sort of just laying down. I've had these things on for a while. I'm like, I can't even keep my eyes open. Normally, it's, it's more difficult for me to get to sleep. Um, since going carnivore, it's much easier for me to get to sleep. And now it's even better. You know, put on a sleep mask. So I really, I really, I've always tried to block out all light. You know, I, I work nights sometimes. And I have to sleep during the day. And so I, uh, you know, use sleep masks for that. But I found that you didn't use a sleep mask anyway. You know, even just the light, you know, on your phone charging, that mm-hmm. would be enough to disturb your sleep. And so just putting on a sleep mask is just, this is blackout. And so that's, that's really helped as well. Um, I always feel better outside. I always feel better in the sun. You know, I go camping. It's been a while since I've gone camping for, uh, you know, a significant period of time, but sort of went on a two week camping trip, sort of cruising up and down the West coast of Australia. And nice. that's where the camp sort of the tent would fold out on the roof because I'd be damned if I want to sleep on the ground with a bunch of snakes and, and yeah. spiders in Australia. But you know, you sort of sleeping up there. I, it was just so natural. You know, some would go down and have a fire. It was awesome. I just like, I made a, like I had chunks of meat and, um, and just sort of stick them on a skewer, like a, like a marshmallow. And that was what I was just roasting over there and just eat this. It was so good. I mean, just that, that over the fire sort of roasted chunk of meat was amazing. And it would just be, I would be so chill. It'd be just so relaxed. It's amazing sky. You're in the middle of the country and you, and you're seeing the whole Milky Way just up front, up above you. It was just amazing. And, uh, and you're just naturally just like, mm, yeah, I need to go to sleep. And, and you sleep as long as it was dark. And, and then the light started coming up and you just sort of started waking up. And it was just like, I, was, I never went to sleep or woke up easier. I never had better energy and just felt better during the day. So I definitely, I'm not an expert in that side of things. Like, you know, like, like Dr. Jack Cruz would be, or, or oh, yeah. a lot of the yeah. other guys, but um, it's something that I'm certainly interested in. And I, I agree. It goes back to our our natural biological design, like we're designed to be in the sun. We're designed, we're not designed to have all these stupid lights around us. And so I think you, you get back to that as well. You're going to be better off. Yeah, hundred percent. I just asked that. Cause it's like, I know that you guys know this, it's part of the ancestral lifestyle kind mm-hmm. of just all together. And it goes along with, you know, defying what centralized medicine is recommending for us, you know, he, you know, less meat, get less sun, wear sunscreen and all this other bullshit. But yeah, yeah sometimes the the Jack Cruz followers give like the, the food focused people a bad rep. But I'm like, no, these guys are doing a great area, you know, mm-hmm. great job educating. And, and we need to bring this together because it's the whole approach. And that momentum will be really helpful because now we're seeing, like I said, all this other research, the mitochondria health showing the benefits of keto carnivore and uh, it's it's really exciting. So I want to thank you. I appreciate everything you do to to educate people on this topic. And thanks for coming on the show. Oh, you're Where welcome. can people uh, find more about what you're doing, what you're building? How to carnivore is is a new uh, thing. I think you're you're building out. So yeah, let people know where they can find you. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's, it's been a pleasure, and I'm glad we're able to to do this. Uh, yeah. So you know, my main thing is I have a YouTube channel. Um, and a podcast so my YouTube channel is just my name, Anthony Chapey, MD. And I have sort of over at this point, over 300 
videos on there, trying to sort of break it up into playlists. You know, that is my podcast, which is called The Plant Free MD. And so I have all those videos on there, or you can go to any of your podcast uh, channels uh, to do that. You know, Apple, Spotify, whatever. And then I also have other playlists, like getting started on a carnivore diet, you know, showing that how to do it, all the different, different things on how best to succeed at this, but also the why. Why this is a good idea, why it makes sense, why it's biologically appropriate. What's the evidence for that? Because I think that's, that's a very important uh, aspect of it as well. If you know why you're doing this, you're much more likely to stay on it. I did this for five years, even though I felt like a god, I still slipped off of it. Why? Because I didn't know the why. Right now, I know the why. There's absolutely no chance in hell that I'm going off of it again. And so, um, I, I put that together for people as well. Um, the how-to carnivore thing is a sort of a, a sort of a support group challenge, sort of thing like a 30-day challenge. And people do it like full-on, just meat, salt, and water for 30 days. See how you feel. If you want to add back in things after that, you can. But just get a baseline. See how you actually feel with only meat and water you're going to feel better than you've ever felt in your entire life. And then you can sort of adjust things from there. Um, and we have, you know, a lot of people in there that have been through this and, and um, maybe, you know, some of these people have been doing it for years, but they like that community sort of support aspect of it. You know, they like helping other people. They like, uh, we have a different app called school, S-K-O-O-L. And we have all different sort of uh, uh, different threads and things like that, where people are talking about answering questions. And, you know, I'm on there, you know, my buddy, uh, Simon, Lewis is on there as well. We're sort of answering questions. And then every week we have a, a Zoom call, um, which I had just before this, where we at, at check in with people, see how they're doing, answer questions, make sure everyone's staying on form. And it, it seems to help a lot of people. We've had a lot of success getting people going on it and, and succeeding at it. We really haven't had anybody who hasn't been able to do it. You know, some people just for lifestyle, like, oh, I just really, really wanted to eat this other stuff. And even though I feel better, you know, you do this other stuff. And that's fine. You know, that that's, it's, it, I don't care what people do with their life. You know, I'm really, I'm really libertarian in that regard. Like I want people to yep. be able to make their own decisions, but I don't want people to be misinformed. I don't want people to be making a decision. Like, oh, I, I ask my patients, you know, they come in, they're having all these health problems. I say, okay, you know, what are you eating? And uh, what does your diet look like? And they say, oh, I eat a really healthy diet. Okay, what does that mean to you? <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, yeah, I, I cut out red meat. I'm eating a whole bunch of, you know, fruits and vegetables and a lot of grains and all that sort of stuff. But I'm like, okay, so my definition of it, you know, is, is a bit different mm-hmm. than yours and you know, we might go into it. But, you know, I'm happy if you want to eat, you know, fruits and vegetables and grains and, you know, cupcakes. I, I don't care. But I just don't want people eating that stuff because they think that, that that's what's healthy for them. So, you know, give them, give them the information. Say, like, look, this, this can actually help you. This can actually make you feel better. And, and if they want to do it, then they can. And if not, then they don't have to, but that, that's sort of the main thing. But, and then I'm on Instagram as well, just Anthony Chafee MD. And that's where I sort of coordinate a lot of, a lot of stuff uh, from there. But yeah, the YouTube channel podcast are the main ones. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on and thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time. <laughs>